So welcome, Jason Plax. Um, Jason, the idea for this podcast came to me, for this particular episode came to me after January 6th, because after January 6th, which um, was the assault on the Capitol, what occurred to me was that I could no longer have the kind of political discussions or debates that I used to have in all my years at Fox when I was um, the token liberal there. And I would debate, I think, in good faith with a lot of conservatives on air, um, because this no longer was a political discussion to me. I, I didn't have the educational background in psychiatry or psychology to debate um, people who, despite all empirical data and despite all evidence, continued to believe that either Antifa um, or some liberal strain was behind these attacks on the Capitol or that um, people were asking for it and deserved it or that the election was stolen despite just the very concrete data that was presented by both Republicans and Democrats in places like Pennsylvania and Georgia that the election obviously was not stolen. And so Emily and I had been talking about this for, for a long time, and I've been talking about it to other people as well. And I said, you know, this requires somebody with a background in psychology, because I don't have that. And I don't know how to talk to these people. So I thought about you, because you, you and I have known each other for so many years. We met, gosh, I guess, 30 years ago or so when you were at Princeton. And you ironically, or maybe not ironically, are now specializing in this and kind of in, in analyzing the psychology behind people's political affiliations and their political leanings. So just as a baseline matter, what have you found? I mean, what have you found in people who are prone? And I'm not talking about people who are conservative in the sense that they supported George Bush back in the day or, or they're um, for a more robust foreign policy or lower taxes. But I mean, people who now are verging on QAnon supporters, maybe not outwardly, but believing a lot of the hype that these conspiracy theories have created, this ecosystem that's just not based in any kind of reality. What have you found um, in your research? What, what, what predicts that kind of behavior? That's the million dollar question. And I think, you know, part of the issue is that there isn't any like single silver bullet you know, answer as much as we want there to be. But I think there are a number of, you know, um, basic principles that can maybe point us in the right direction. And so, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I, I, I study experimental psychology. I study how just basic fundamental rules of human behavior and basic motivations people might have uh, guide their everyday behavior. And so the perspective I'm coming, you know, to this question from is, can we leverage some of the basic fundamental motivations everyone has and try to figure out how we can use those to understand all sorts of behavior, including the kind of behavior you're talking about? And also, can we maybe pick out some of the points at which liberals and conservatives differ in the strength of these motivations and to help us pinpoint, you know, maybe different language we can use in our discourse, different ways of framing the debate to try to make more contact uh, with the intuitions of the other side? So let me give you some examples. So some of the basic differences between liberals and conservatives that we found in our research uh, fall along several different dimensions. And one of them is what we call negativity bias. So in general, everybody, for everyone, kind of negative leaves a heavier imprint than positive, right? So it hurts more to lose $100 than winning $100 feels good. Right. And there's this kind of built in bias that everyone has. But 
the evidence suggests that that bias is stronger for conservatives than for liberals. So in other words, kind of negative looms larger, right? And so that's kind of one starting point where we can begin to think about, okay, how can we use that information in kind of crafting our messages and crafting the way we talk to the other side? Another interesting one that um, we've been looking at in my lab and a lot of other kind of my colleagues' labs has to do with disgust and disgust sensitivity. So it turns out that conservatives are more likely than liberals to agree with statements like, when I see a pool of vomit on the sidewalk, it makes me feel ill, right? And so this is, you know, this is a kind of stimulus that has nothing to do with politics per se, right? It has to do with, you know, a kind of physiological response to some sort of pathogen that you see, right? But um, conservatives respond more strongly to those kind of stimuli. So how can we use that information, right? And so there are a number of these kind of basic fundamental dimensions that on the surface have nothing to do with politics, but they do form a kind of building block for ultimately what we can talk about as like political behavior. So building on that disgust difference, I can kind of give you a more concrete example. So a colleague of mine has found that you can really close the gap between liberals and conservatives in their uh, views about uh, pollution and climate change and things like that. Um, if you craft your message that to be about disgust. So for example, if you show conservatives pictures of, you know, uh, water fowl that have covered in oil after an oil spill or something like that, right? They're really kind of disgusting images. All of a sudden you can make them really care about the environment, right? Wow. And actually close the gap, right? Between liberals and conservatives because you're kind of speaking their language, right? And they're the languages, the language of disgust. That's fascinating. Well, first of all, now I know why they don't ride the New York subway ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I'll just I'll raise this before you go on, um, because it's such an interesting point that you make. I think also, I guess, disgust also correlates with fear to some extent, right? That if you fear an outcome uh, almost prophylactically, that that tends to make you more conservative, at least. Is that is that accurate or, or not really? Yeah, well, one of the I mean, kind of links that we've also found in our lab is between disgust and a desire for order, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember this, you know, from my days living in, in New York as a grad student that I had a better chance of spotting the cockroaches in my kitchen if I kept my kitchen kind of in an orderly, tidy, you know, state, right? And so order can help you identify the contaminants, right? And so... So we move beyond the literal to kind of the more metaphorical. If you have an orderly society, then it helps you identify, you know, the people who don't belong in the society, right? Um, and uh, and so there's a, this kind of link between the two that you see in a lot of uh, the literature. Does that correlate to, is that a direct correlation that you could find between that and racial bias to some extent? For example, if I live in a pretty homogenous neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's a white homogenous neighborhood, and then a black family moves in. Is that something that you find that conservatives have more of a reaction to because primarily that desire for order and um, consistency, or is that not a correlation that you could really make? Um, there is some evidence of that, in the, but there's even stronger evidence for um, being anti-immigration, 
right? That's so that's question. where you're really bringing in outsiders into the, you know, pristine world you've created, right? Right. That's interesting. You know, I, Emily and I have talked about this and I'm jump in, but Emily and I have talked about this incident that I had probably 10 or 15 years ago, which has just stuck with me because it's such a fascinating glimpse into the mind of somebody who's conservative versus me, who's obviously not. Um, I had a conversation with a guy who was a pretty high ranking official at the NRA National Republic, uh, Rifle Association here in New York, <laughs> which doesn't mean much because the NRA here is not strong at all. But I was telling him how much I hate guns. And I have this very visceral aversion to, to guns. I just, even when I see policemen with guns, I just, I, I don't, psychologically, I don't know what it is. I just have always had this very visceral reaction to firearms. And I said that to him. And he told me, he was, you're nuts, you're crazy, guns are great, they're going to protect you. And I said, I don't really want to have a gun to protect me because my fear of the gun going off inadvertently and hurting me or somebody I care about is much stronger than, than worrying about something happening to me. And he kind of stopped in his tracks and he looked at me like I was literally nuts. And he said, well, don't blame me when you get raped, not if, but when you get raped, um, that you will not be able to protect yourself. And I kind of stopped and I looked at him and I said, well, I don't wake the difference between you and me is I don't wake up every morning worrying about getting raped. I mean, it very well could happen, but it's not something that I consciously ever am concerned about. And so I consciously don't feel like I need protection against an event that may or may not happen. I just don't live my life living in fear that way. And to me, that kind of struck me as the fundamental difference psychologically between me and a lot of conservatives I know, and especially having worked at Fox for all those years and having seen the fear mechanism, and you're right, the order mechanism that drives programming decisions and drives other um, other decisions. For example, yesterday, while CNN and MSNBC were talking about um, the FBI's investigation into the January 6th debacle at the Capitol, Fox was talking about Dr. Seuss being quote unquote banned, which of course he hasn't been, but, but this this kerfuffle over Dr. Seuss potentially being pulled from Read Across America because of some racist imagery that he's had in his books. And that to me just said it all, right? <laughs> which is this outrage machine of constantly putting people in fear of their life changing, as you said, right? Their their way of life being under assault. This Dr. Seuss, who we all read as children and, and read to our children and um, have has Dr. Seuss has been read to us for generations on end. Suddenly, that way of life is under assault. Um, and, and last week, Emily, what was it before it was Dr. Seuss? It was something else that I forgot they were all about. But something else kind of equally, not, I mean, equally kind of insane. But is that what you see? Is that the sort of mechanism where the outrage from them and the anger from them and the prophylactic fear from them like in the instance of the guy from the NRA, um, is that what drives them to be more politically conservative or, or is that just to surface to understand well? Well, I don't see any evidence that conservatives are generally more fearful than liberals, right? I, I think conservatives and liberals just fear different things, right? I mean, I think, you know, a lot of Biden voters voted for Biden out of fear of what giving Trump a second term would mean, right? I mean, I think, and and I think a lot of Democrats leveraged that fear, and and right. played to that fear. I mean, I think the you know now it's possible that you know Biden voters' fears had a more stronger basis in reality right. than um, you know from the 
Republican perspective, you know, a vote for Biden was a vote for Stalin. And, and from the Democrat perspective, a vote for Trump was a vote for Mussolini. Um, but both are playing on fear. Now, one fear might be slightly more realistic than the other, right? But they're both using fear. So I don't, I don't think it's really about differences in fear. Um, and the evidence doesn't really support that either. It's more about the kinds of things that they fear. Um, but you don't think it's a motivation. Fear is not the motivation that motivates one political party or political affiliation more than another. I think, you know, it's, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a really good question, but I think really it's more about some of these other kinds of emotional states um, and motivations like a desire for order, like disgust sensitivity, um, like anger. Um, and, but fear just doesn't have, uh, maybe because fear is too difficult to measure, maybe because fear, you have to ask the toward what question, right? Fear of what? Um, and because it's difficult to ask that question, there isn't a lot of strong evidence to say that conservatives are just more fearful than, than liberals. I guess what's tough for me to reconcile then is order, but then you have numbers to back certain things up, like the election wasn't stolen. How how do you reconcile that? Because numbers show that Biden clearly won, and that's through an orderly system. But now you can completely believe the opposite. Where, where the evidence and the actual numbers have nothing to do with that. We have to start talking about media bubbles and we have to start talking about, you know, the kind of information that you're exposed to. If, if you're exposed to, you know, a, a, a media bubble that's telling you a very systematic and clear narrative that this is what happened in Pennsylvania and this is what happened in Georgia and this is what happened in Arizona and, uh, and it all, all the dots sort of connect, then it, it can be orderly. It does make sense, right? It, it is a clear narrative. It may it's maybe incorrect, but it's they have no way of knowing that it's incorrect if you're only exposing yourself to certain information. So, is there a way that you can psychologically get people to see, from my from my point of view, reality on their terms, right? So, for example, if somebody's prone to a feel of disgust. Um, when they see vomit on the sidewalk, as you said, um, I can't do anything about that. That's nothing you're ever going to change somebody, maybe I mean, through lots of lots of therapy, but not inherently, you're not going to change somebody's attitude. So, but is it possible to meet somebody psychologically? Is it possible to meet somebody on their terms and then be able to persuade them to accept certain realistic standpoints or, or has is it almost preordained that psychologically they are prone to this desire for order, this desire for orderliness, um, and therefore their desire to believe certain evidence that doesn't really exist? Well, I mean, I think one of the things about Trump is that he actually threw a stick of dynamite onto the whole you know, idea that conservatives prefer order. Right. Because he came in and was just master of chaos. And I th I believe that's what drove, you know, to the extent that there were any Trump to Biden voters, and I think there were a fair amount of them, I think a lot of them were turned off by the chaos. Right. And, you know, Biden, to some extent, tried to play to that and say, I'm going to be the candidate of the normal order. I'm going to be the, going back to kind of a traditional president. 
and uh, and that spoke to some people, right? So um, he probably could have done more of that, and I think Democrats as a party could have done more of that. But so the point is to, you know, conservatives and and, Demo- and liberals are often kind of you can think of them as tuned to different frequencies, right? And so you have to change your frequency if you're a Democrat and you want to speak to Republicans. You have to change it so that your frequency is speaking their language, right? It's tuned to their concerns. Um, and so I think messages that speak to, hey, do you love chaos? If you love chaos, vote for, for vote for Trump. But if you hate chaos, and as a conservative, you should, then you should give us a look. Except interestingly, empirical data um, from all the quantitative research that I saw and also some of the qualitative re- research that I conducted um, in my political consultant world is mm-hmm. the opposite, which is um, by a significant, statistically significant margin, more African-Americans and Latinos, for example, um, voted for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016, despite all the chaos. Um, and, and the reasons for that, which are very, very difficult to extrapolate, so this is where the qualitative data comes in, um, is that it is because they wanted order. So if you are, for example, and I hate using um, Latinos as a holistic group because that's a silly saying. All Europeans have the same, you know, desires, which is not true either. But if you're, if you statistically, if you came from a place that had a really bad experience with socialism, um, Colombia, Venezuela, um, you really, um, or frankly, not just that, but the Asian populations too, Vietnamese, for example, um, a bad situation with communism or socialism you were much more prone to vote for Trump over 2016 relative to how that same cohort voted in 20, excuse me, 2020, relative to how that cohort voted in 2016. Ironically, with Black Lives Matter taking such center stage where African-American voters tended to either stay home or vote for Trump in larger numbers than, than they did in 2016 was because of the whole defund the police aspect. They wanted order. Um, because they didn't want the police to be defunded, um, having had experience firsthand with why, you know, with crime and, and and there's some correlation too. If you've had personal experience with crime, you obviously don't want to hear about the police being defunded. Um, so on the one hand, you have, it's the opposite of kind of what you're saying, which is that you have those cohorts who want um, more order voting for a guy who was the most disordered president that I think we've had probably since James Buchanan, um, who, and who led to more disorder than we've had since James Buchanan. Um, and on the other hand, it is, this, it is rather than Republicans coming over to the Democratic side, it was cohorts in the Democratic coalition who came over to the Republican side. The only reason, so Trump was able to persuade more of them. It's not that there was a turnout, the turnout model wasn't wrong, it's that the persuasion that Trump was able to do for, for traditionally liberal constituencies was more effective, which is strange to me in light of what you just said about people craving order. Yeah, well, I, I mean, this is it's a really good point you're making. I, I think it, it might be not so much that these groups were voting for Trump because he was going to bring order as much as, you know, uh, at least for, you know, some of the you know, uh, South American, you know, immigrants, it was kind of the anti-communist message, 
that really goes with the whole Republican Party. And that's going to really resonate. That's always going to resonate with people who come from communist parts of the world. Um, So I think that was really what resonated with them. And with the black community, it's interesting. And I don't have a terrific answer for that, except for, well, on the one hand, yes, he was the, you know, agent of disorder. But on the other hand, what he was promising, right, is strong police and we're going to reduce the crime in your neighborhood and we're going to, you know, make it safe. Now, so there's a, there was a difference between his own behavior, which is chaotic, and what he was promising, which was order. Apparently, I think, to my surprise and your surprise, the promises resonated with a yeah. fair number of African-Americans. Well, either that or they saw um, the disorder that the Black Lives Matter movement created in certain cities, and that resonated right. with them, yeah. um, you know, intuitively, I guess. What is interesting to me also is where Democrats picked up was with white um, women, because mm-hmm. white, and typically white college educated women, I think the, the correlation now is really between um, people with higher degrees of education and those who are not in the research that we've seen of people who vote democratic versus people who, who don't vote democratic. It's become not so much about race as it is about that educational attainment. But what's also interesting to me is those same, so first of all, white women, and I say this as a white woman, are a complete disappointment to the Democratic Party and have been for a long time. Um, and Democrats have not won the White House with the majority of the white vote, I believe, since Lyndon Johnson in 1964, which is just astounding. Wow. Um, yeah. It is all the more interesting to me, based on everything that you said about a desire for order, orderliness and, and a level of disgust um, that leads people more towards voting for somebody like Trump, and maybe not just Republicans, but Trump specifically, something that he was able to tap into, that should be a concern and a red flag to me for the Democratic Party because white women tended to vote Democratic in ways that they didn't before because of their disgust with Trump. But now that Trump is gone um, and probably will not be running again, they probably they, they may revert back to their traditional right. voting Republican. But that notion that another Republican can tap into, which is not hard to do, you don't need to be a Donald Trump to tap into it, which is order and orderliness that's something that is easily tapped into by any Republican um, in ways that I think Democrats would have a harder time persuading their own base to accept. Um, a true sense of the word conservative, um, right. Small, right? That's easier said than done. And that, to me, taps really into a lot of people who used to be considered a part of the Democratic base, which is voters of color, whether it is people from Venezuela or Colombia or Vietnam, you know, Asians and, and Latinos who are, who are more up for grabs now than they were before. And also, certainly African-American men also, which which is really frightening to me. So that's an interesting analysis that you have where if I'm a Republican, I, I listen very carefully to what you say. And I think, okay, I now know what I need to do. I need to know what to embody to, to not just keep my own coalition in place, but also expand it out to part of the Democratic coalition. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, helpful to kind of point out these you know areas where um, Democrat, the Democratic coalition could be vulnerable. But at the same time, I think there's also room for attack, you know. Like I mean, what? Making appeals to Republicans based on order. I mean, I think I think that was a big part of Biden's appeal. We talked a lot about conservatives and, and, and what motivates them. What motivates liberals? What motivates progressives in terms of 
what they're affiliated with. Okay, so there's one, you know, interesting trait that's called openness or openness to experience. And so that does have to do with kind of a willingness to entertain, you know, new experiences, whether it's aesthetic experiences or new foods or, you know, new genres of music or art or something like that. Liberals do score higher on that. And presumably that has something to do with just, you know, being more generally kind of open to changes to the status quo, um, being more uh, okay with a kind of low level discomfort or disequilibrium when you see, you know, a jarring painting or, or movie and it kind of shakes you up a little bit. Liberals are more okay with that. How you leverage that into communications, I don't know, but I think, you know, I think that's something maybe Obama was able to do a little bit successfully in trying to appeal to, you know, the coolness factor, trying to appeal to the idea that, you know, we're doing something new and young and radical and um, try to make friendly contact with those intuitions you might have, you you potential Democratic voters. But how do you reconcile a flip again between voters who voted for Obama, white voters who voted for Obama in 2016, despite the fact that he represented a huge break with the existing status quo in the order, I mean, just by virtue of being named Barack Hussein Obama and being black, not to even mention the policies that, that were very different from the previous administration. Um, how do you reconcile that with them then reverting to voting for Trump in 16? I guess, is it that Hillary Clinton as a woman was a bridge too far, or maybe as an individual was a bridge too far? Well, I mean, I think the, a lot of the voters who gave Obama a chance gave him a chance because <laughs> he was something new. And, you, you know, and they voted for him for a lot of the same reasons they voted for Trump, that they're fed up with the whole damn system. And they're looking for anyone who represents some sort of, you know, break with the tradition. This idea of, of being an outsider is very appealing. And every politician pretends they're an outsider in some form or fashion. And because it works, at least in the short term, it works. Again, I guess I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind. Emily, I don't know if you can, I mean, if you could understand this better than I can, but I have a hard time wrapping my mind around people who are, um, on the one hand, looking for order, and on the other hand, looking for a disruptor to that order. Is it disruptor as much as work? like maintaining the status quo and keeping power? It's whoever, I guess, can do that the most effectively. Order in a way where you're maintaining power. But like we saw at the, you know, July or January 6th that, okay, so the whole idea of law and order is kind of bold in a lot of cases. I think to Julie's confusion for, for me, I, I just, because that's not law and order, that was chaos. But so many Republicans are still behind that because it kept certain a certain status quo in order. Often, you know, you'll hear the expression that you need to break eggs to make an omelet. So the idea is like, you know, we're willing to you know, suffer a period of disorder in order you know, to gain back rock solid order in the long run. That's kind of the justification people will use to deal with that, to handle that. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I just sat through um, some pretty extensive focus groups with voters and a couple of observations that maybe you can explain the psychology behind because I can only explain what I saw. Um, not not how they got there psychologically. Um, 
first and foremost, the most positive people on the planet are African-American voters, which of all the people who have everything to not be positive about compared to other people, they are, um, they continue to give benefits of the doubt to, to, to politicians and to policies in ways that are not commensurate with the African-American experience in this country. So that's one. Um, and I'm not talking about leadership. I'm talking about just, you know, everyday um, African-American voters. The people who have the most, to, who have the least to complain about in my mind, but complain the most about the status quo are white men. Um, mm -hmm. And no surprise, um, everything sucks in their life, despite the fact that in reality, compared to everybody else, everything's pretty good in their life. Um, and two separate white um, non-college educated men said something in this focus group that I just thought was really fascinating. This was um, in the midst of COVID. So this is about maybe last summer when things were getting pretty dire for everybody. They said um, that each of them, and they didn't know each other, these were random people, each of them had an adult daughter and the adult daughter um, filed for um, unemployment under um, COVID under, you know, the extended employment benefits because of COVID that Congress passed. And both of them were very scornful of their own daughters for quote unquote, sitting on their ass and doing nothing and not looking for a job um, and just collecting this fat unemployment check um, because they could, which I thought was fascinating to the point where the ideology almost prompted, almost trumped a disdain for, um, for, their own children in a way that I think most of, us, most of us wouldn't necessarily sit there and trash our own kids. And again, these were perfectly, I mean, I think one was retired in his sixties. The other one was, I think a truck driver. So these weren't, you know, these are people who, who were all, as they said, family guys and, and, you know, were very committed to their family, but they were just very scornful and disdainful of their own daughters for, as they thought, just, you know, sitting there being welfare Queens in their minds without actually bothering to look for a new job because they were making more money on unemployment in their mind than they would have been, working. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. So I don't understand that because that's not the kind of, um, that's not the kind of response that you get from women typically. Um, and it's not the kind of response you get from African-American voters, regardless of gender. Um, it's very inherent to, to white men, um, and, and white working class men who, again, um, I don't know if it's a level, and again, it's not even based on education because the African-American voters and the women we spoke to are not necessarily all college graduates either. So I don't know what you what you make of that, if anything. I mean, that raises in my mind another kind of point of, you know, inflection between conservatives and liberals, and that has to do with, you know, meritocracy beliefs. Right. right? <clears throat> and this kind of Protestant work ethic idea, which is, you know, really, really enormously influential in our society. The idea that, you know, um, if you work hard and, you know, put in your, you know, in good faith effort, you will get rewarded. End of story. And anyone and, and ergo, you know, anyone who isn't doing well must be lazy. Right. Uh, it's kind of the logical, you know, the, the incorrect logical deduction from that. And so that's a really, really prevalent belief. And that's, you know, one of the ways that you know, conservatives and liberals differ. And it's especially true, you know, the more kind of libertarian you get within the uh, conservative, so, uh, you know, coalition, right? So conservatives themselves are made up of different strands of beliefs that don't always hang together. 
You know, it's fascinating to me that Romney's going around now wanting to give everybody free money, right, just for having children, right? Right. And, and including, you know, people, you know, I mean, if I understand his plan correctly, just for everyone who has, for every child, you get a certain amount of money, regardless of whether you're employed. And this is also, you know, black and brown families tend to have higher birth rates. So this is a benefit that would disproportionately benefit, uh, you know, minority people. And this is the same guy who not so long ago was talking about the 40 percent, you know, takers. Yeah. Well, uh, that's why that's why I'm curious if there are truly any look, we can give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's evolved. Um, or you could be a little bit more cynical and say that there really is not much ideology to Mitt Romney, the same guy who supported Romney care, which was Obamacare right. or Barack Obama ever showed up um, only to disavow his own plan. Um, or not his own plan. Apparently, his plan was just fine, but only to run against Obamacare. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't put much stock in, in Mitt Romney on this kind of stuff. This is also the same Mitt Romney that, for some reason, decided to curry favor with Trump by asking him for a job back in 2016. Right. You know, or whatever. Yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, yeah. describing any noble, you know, yeah. deals to him. I think it's more like he senses a yearning out there. He knows which way the wind is blowing. He senses a yearning for something that, like, you know. People on the left would call, you know, basic income. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, you might you might dress it up in some other kind of, uh, you know, uh, right wing language, but it's basically basic income. Yeah, and I think it's also potentially underscoring that the unpaid labor that mothers, especially during COVID, are subjected to, and the loss of income as a result of having to care for their kids, may finally get people to start thinking about the fact that you know this this stuff is free, but it shouldn't be because. <laughs> It's allowing women to pass up a lot of other opportunities in life because they have to rush home and you know take care of their kids or stay home to take care of their kids. But and you also did an interesting study I saw on media consumption and not just media consumption with respect to Fox News versus MSNBC, but media consumption with respect to all sorts of broad-based media um, and how that correlates to political affiliation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Looking at the types of genres that people prefer. Um, and so looking beyond the actual content you know, of political content, we're looking at, at like broader genres. So, for example, do you prefer action movies and spy thrillers or do you prefer soap operas or do you prefer, you know, um, edgy alternative music or, you know, do you prefer? Um, and so there's a whole list of different genres of art forms, both in, in television, movie, music, books. Um, and it turns out what you can do is you can divide Conservatives into three types, and this is something that we've em empirically done. And so the three types that um, the labels that we have, we call the um, libertarian independence people, right? So that's kind of the more libertarian strain. Uh, another type is the religious traditionalists, and the third type is the ethnic separatists, right? And it turns out there's only a moderate correlation among those three groups, and each group has their own kind of independent ab ability to predict all sorts of interesting outcomes, including who you're going to vote for. Really? Yeah. So oh. for example, so for example, the religious traditionalism dimension didn't predict preferring uh, Trump over Clinton. Um, it was just, it was the other two, the libertarian and the ethnic separatism. So speak to that though, because obviously the first thing that occurs to people is that, um, evangelicals went for Trump. Yeah. More, yeah. More so that was surprising to us. And I think it's because although the evangelicals are 
you know, very well organized and very loud and very, you know, uh, prominent in political discourse, their actual numbers compared to the entire set of religious people in the United States, you talk about all the other denominations of Christianity, um, almost every other denomination is to the left of evangelicals, um, including Catholics, right? Um, and then not to mention all the other religions, uh, who all usually by and large wind up to the left of evangelicals. And so if you take the entire set of religious people in the United States, you're going to get this kind of wash because the evangelicals don't probably aren't even the majority of them. Interesting, because at the same time, I would think that white working class Catholics, I think if you walk, first of all, I think if you walk into a Catholic church these days, what you see typically are older more maybe I don't know about working class, but but certainly older voters, and so you'd assume that they are more prone to voting Republican. But I guess if Catholicism is the biggest or one of the biggest denominations in the country, you're saying that's not necessarily true. Well, what are the data with Biden? I mean, uh, did they vote against the Catholic? It's all yeah. I mean, I don't know holistically whether they voted against the Catholic, but I wouldn't be surprised. Or if it was very close, I have to check that. That's a good question. Well, first of all, you have to define Catholic. You have to define church going Catholic. And same thing with Judaism, right? Like I am a secular Jew as a guest. I still identify as a Jew, but it's not like I, you know, have set foot in a synagogue in the last, I don't know, X number of years. So that's interesting. But so what you're saying is the racial resentment, which is how I would describe it, um, has a much larger correlation to where you are. Yeah, yeah. And and also and the the strongest one was the uh, the libertarian dimension, the kind of hands off you know, get the government off my back um, dimension was actually the strongest predictor of voting for Trump. And that was a surprise to us, too, but that it would be the strongest. We expected it would be something, but we we didn't expect it to be the number one predictor. And this applied to both men and women um, who scored strongly on this dimension. So it's so fascinating because say what you will about Donald Trump. And I've had this big problem with the Democratic Party for a long time because I think our messaging is all over the place. But Taking everything you said, it's almost like Trump looked at your research and said, I know what I have to do. (laughs) Um, Seriously, because the two things that he ran on were racial resentment, which is what, despite how much they want to deny it, is exactly what built the wall and immigration and Mexico sends, you know, doesn't send their best and all the other not so coded dog whistles that he engaged in from the day he came down that escalator. And the other is deregulation. Stop with the overreach. Regulation, the regulation. And it's fascinating because he put into practice everything that you found in your research. Yeah. I mean, and it's actually remarkable how rarely the word abortion was spoken mm-hmm. in up to the run up to the 2020 election and in 2016 also, right? I mean, it was it was just not a central issue. Um it, well, it was, again, in that dog whistle way, which is Democrats, I have, um, and culture, um, God, going back to probably 2008, when I had this conversation with her in, um, in the green room, um, I, thought, I forgot when, but it went back probably to either Obama's first election. It might have even been John Kerry. I think it was John Kerry in 2004. And she said, I don't give a damn about anything else. I just care about the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And Republicans and conservatives focused in the Supreme Court in crazy ways, not crazy, in very smart ways, I should say, that liberals just never had. And lo right. and behold, look what you have now. And that impetus for that, abortion doesn't need to be mentioned 
because that desire for a conservative majority on the court began with Roe versus Wade, began in 1973. And that's the word. You don't need to mention abortion to a conservative crowd. You just need to talk about appointing strict construction as constitutionalist judges to the court. Everybody in the Republican coalition knows what that means. Um, It's all about abortion and it's all about Roe versus Wade. And I often wonder, um, and you know, I had a friend, um, I have a friend, not had a friend, I I have a very good friend whose parents are um, evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And he said to me point blank, my parents are probably more aligned with Democrats on most issues, but they will never vote for a Democrat as long as Roe versus Wade is the law of the land because they want a Supreme Court that's going to overturn it. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder if Roe versus Wade had never happened, whether Democrats would have been more electorally successful. I'm, I'm very happy it happened. Um, but from a purely um, electoral standpoint, how much that has damaged Democrats and motivated Republicans um, again because of the Supreme Court and the desire for an overturn of Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I mean, what's been fascinating to me is like why, you know, attitudes on abortion have been so stuck in place for 50 years, whereas for other kind of social issues, there's been massive change. So you think of like you know same-sex marriage. You know, as late as you know 2006, 2008, Republicans were putting in like referendums into like state you know, elections to try to drive up vote, right, to vote against same-sex marriage. And now that would be unthinkable today. So in a short period of time, there's been a massive change to the left on that issue, which is, you'd think on the surface is related. It's like a religious issue, uh, biblical issue. Um, but oh, I know why. <laughs> I, I know. I know the answer. Um, it's twofold. One is um, abortion is secretive for the most part people don't talk about it. and i think there's been a very positive rise in celebrities and others saying hey i had an abortion um because it, it it destigmatizes it but typically abortion is something that um nobody talks about getting and so as a result um people don't think they know people who've gotten abortions even though i think the statistics is like you know one out of three women or i forgot what the numbers are but it's some uh, chances are you know many people who've had abortions um, so, uh, conversely, gay marriage is something where, uh, as people felt more comfortable coming out of the closet, suddenly it was your brother, it was your father, it was your best friend, it was somebody, um, right, Emily? I mean, don't you think, because, um, you've obviously fit into that, don't you think that it's become much more destigmatized to, to come out of the closet now, um, than it was 10 or 15 years ago? Right. I, I really do. And, and, and I really want to hit home your point. I think it's just because gay people have become more visible and more, right, your friend, your brother, your sister, whatever, but still abortion is not. Women in, in even issues of periods and like women's issue are still just getting to the surface of being like talked about in normal conversation. Yeah. I mean, talk about disgust. I mean, think about how many people yeah. are stabbed by the concept of a woman having her period, right? Which 99.9% of women have. Um, at some point in their lives. So that's what, so one is, I think one is more destigmatized than the other, which makes it more acceptable because suddenly you have um, Republican members of Congress who are potentially have been in the closet themselves or have kids who are gay or, you know, they're coming out of the closet. So that's one. And the other is abortion is a zero sum game in ways that gay marriage or, or, or gay relationships are not in the following sense. 
if you believe abortion is murder, it is morally incumbent on you to stop it. In the same way that if I saw a murder being committed on the street, it would be morally incumbent on me to stop that murder from happening. And so I think if you believe that no matter the circumstances for the life of the child and how that is, they call a child, we would call it fetus. But if, if, if that fetus were fertilized and it's a child, it's a living thing now, then how could you possibly kill a baby? And there's no, there's no gray area around it. What, what I'm always confused about, and I respect that, by the way, if you believe abortion is murder, of course, you want to stop it. What I don't respect is, except in cases of rape and incest, because if it's a living thing, then don't punish it for being conceived in rape or incest. Mm-hmm. But that's neither here nor there. So I think that's that's why I don't want to go down the abortion mm-hmm. rabbit hole here. But I think that's the difference between something like gay marriage, which I remember in 2004 um, was literally the thing that won George Bush, Ohio, and therefore the right. election. <laughs> um, and it turned out that the architect of that, beside Carl Rowe, was the Republican National Committee chairman, um, um, who then came out as gay. Um, <laughs> and there was a move in all New York City clubs for gay men not to sleep with him to punish him for that. But that's also down. <laughs> I just happen to know him. So I remember when this whole movement was happening. <laughs> Um, where they decided to deny him, deny, decided to deny him sex and retaliation for, for what he did to the gay community. Yeah, so there is like a, a social psychological concept yeah. that you're speaking to that's called pluralistic ignorance. And the idea there is that, you know, people have a misperception of what the norm is. You know, so the example I always tell like to my students is, you know, when a professor asks the, you know, everyone in the lecture hall, any questions? And there's like, chirping crickets chirping and a coyote howls in the distance it's like total silence right um and meanwhile many of the students do have questions but each individual thinks they're the only one mm-hmm. who doesn't get it right and they're looking around and think well no one else seems to have any questions so i'm gonna keep quiet right and and this is you know scaled out to the entire classroom and so no one asks a question the professor thinks he's done a brilliant job of teaching yeah. and then everyone gets the question wrong on the test Right. Right. Um, and so it's a similar kind of thing here, that because there's a misperception of the norm because of this silence. And so this, I think it's a very smart idea to for women who've had abortions to really, really come out and destigmatize it and come out en masse. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I just think, again, the opprobrium you get for for doing it, I think, is so awful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to my freshman year in college. <laughs> I don't know if I ever said this to you, Emily. Jason, I don't know if I ever told you this because you knew me back then. Like my first semester of freshman year in college, I get to Boston. I'm all progressive. I decide I'm going to, you know, change the world. And I go to, I, I decide to team up with a bunch of other people. And we take a bus that was being organized by somebody down to a, 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 ra- a counter rally that was taking place in front of an abortion clinic in Providence, Rhode Island. So on the one side of the street, you have all these women um, protesting against the pro-life or the anti-choice movement that is protesting on the other side of the street. And they've got priests, you know, saying the rosary and the Hail Mary for all the lives that have been taken in this abortion clinic. And then you've got all the women who are protesting at them, you know, like, it's our body. We want to do what we want. And then suddenly Queer Nation shows up, which I don't think is, is, Emily, is Queer Nation still a thing? Have you ever heard of Queer Nation? Not that I know of. Okay. I feel like I've heard uh, about most, but I don't. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, back in my day, Queer Nation, I think, was was this what they would consider this very um, radical lesbian. Maybe I'm completely misconstruing it. And if I am, I'm sorry. But um, they show up and they start screaming at these priests um, like insanely. Keep your rosaries off my ovaries. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said, I think I'm done here. <laughs> and the reason I said I think I'm done here is because it was obvious to me that they were being completely disrespectful of these priests who truly believed they were stopping murder at the same time that the priests were obviously making women who were at that moment trying to make their way through to get an abortion, which is, uh, you know, I've never had one, but I would assume is probably the most, one of the most traumatic things that can happen to you, regardless of what you think about being pro-life or pro-choice. Trying to, to make these women who are literally going through an awful experience, making them feel awful and making them feel like they're baby killers and, 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 you know, trying to put a whole guilt trip on them. And I, I kind of, the whole thing was so toxic to me from both sides that I said, I just don't want to deal anymore. And I, and I left, um, which maybe was the wrong thing, but you know, this abortion conversation kind of gets me back to the original point of this discussion, which is, I don't know that we can ever agree on it. The only thing we could ever agree on is that we probably could work together to have less unwanted pregnancies um, that would lead to an abortion. But then again, the same people who oppose abortion also oppose things like IUDs and and other birth control in in some cases. So I don't know that we ever can speak the same language on abortion any more than we can on what happened on January 6th, right? Doesn't that bring us back to the original point we were talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess I'll... I'm a little bit more optimistic just because I do keep in mind, you know, all the issues. You can go to kind of issue after issue where the vast majority of the American public has swung left, right? So you can talk about same-sex stuff. You can talk about cannabis, like red state after red state is legalizing it. And, you know, Julie and I are old enough to remember when that was like a big political issue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And... And so why is that, right? And and you can go to issue after issue, like even something like gun control, you know, the vast majority of the American public, not their elected officials, but the vast majority of the American public, like 80, 90%, depending on what poll you look at, wants something, wants some sort of gun control, right? And so the, the public, you know, there are certain like cultural battles that the left kind of has won. And, can cl- and should relish the victory and claim the victory and use that as inspiration for future battles. Well, gun control is not a battle, I think, that we won because despite the fact that gun safety is something the majority of Americans, including the majority of NRA members, want. Um, yeah. You know, it's just been demagogued to death to the point where it's so toxic, Democrats don't bring it up anymore. I mean, Clinton was the last person who really did anything about significant gun safety legislation when he did the assault weapons ban. Um and but what's interesting to me is I feel like there's a and this is a psych, again a very psychologically kind of oriented question I feel like there's a massive paradigm shifting from when you and I were growing up and what it meant to be or even the last God you know until Trump came along um, where what it meant to be a Democrat versus a Republican or a conservative versus a liberal and a lot of it was hinged on social issues a lot of it was hinged on um, economic issues, whether fiscal policy or, or, or even foreign policy. Um, what it wasn't hinged on was, as you said, and maybe it was the undercurrent was always there, but it wasn't as apparent, racial resentment 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I remember when a, a candidate in Virginia, the former governor of Virginia, ran for, um, God, when was this, 2008, 2012, I can't remember, 2010, ran for state for United States Senate and called a Democratic tracker, who I believe was Asian Indian, a macaca. Remember the macaca incident? I don't know if you guys All remember. Right. And that guy got ridden off the stage by his own party. I mean, his own party was like, this guy is atrocious. We have to get away from him. How dare he use racial terminology like this? How do you go from that to Donald Trump other than he has exactly tapped into the id of what makes a conservative a conservative? As you said, racial resentment, a desire for law and order, which demonizes the other, um, which is the other, somebody who obviously doesn't look like you. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if this has always been there um, and is just coming out more prominently now where it wasn't accepted in polite society now it's absolutely accepted in republican polite society at least um to to believe in these kinds of things i mean of the billions of things that trump said every day any other politician would have been distanced from by his own party until trump came along so i don't know that things are getting better i think there's a realignment where it's now they've stopped being the party of um of ideology from a from a political standpoint and started being the party of like a psychological ideology which is exactly what you said a desire for order a desire for um racial you know the racial resentment that you that you pointed to and and so how that manifests itself in policy is really kind of immaterial as long as you say that you're going to do it i agree it's more about identity and identifying with one team or the other team and there's, you know, a powerful, powerful psychological, you know, benefit that people get from identifying with a group and especially a group of uh, that you hold in high esteem. And and so that, yeah, you're right. I mean, the actual policies are immaterial. And that's kind of why I rose, why, you know, I, I raised the um, the Mitt Romney issue mm-hmm. like, because it's like all of a sudden now he's giving basic income and it's because the, the actual policies don't matter anymore. Right. It's really is about these kind of psychological issues. And I agree. I agree. And so how do you deal with that? And so, you know, obviously we can't put 74 million people into decades of therapy. Right. And I don't think like it's we're talking about a clinical diagnosis. I mean, I think what we want to talk about is how can we use what we know about the basic motivations people have to kind of craft messages that do make friendly contact with people's intuitions. Um, and make people, you know, um, on both sides feel like the other side. Well, we do share some intuitions. Uh, we do share some intuitions about uh, the basic things we want out of our society. Like what? Well, like everybody wants order <laughs> to some degree, right? Everybody wants um, basic functioning government. Um, everyone wants... Uh, to have an equal or, or, or like a fair shot at economic advancement, right? And everyone agrees with that. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I might differ with you on that. I don't know. From my experience, I think, well, uh, let's look at affirmative action, right? Which one might argue will give everybody a more equal playing field. So, um, and I'll use, you went to Princeton, which is obviously a very hard school to get into, Right. Um, and the numbers of people who said to Michelle Obama, oh, you only got into Princeton because of affirmative action. I mean, the woman, by all accounts, is a brilliant woman, was a brilliant student, 
But nevertheless, Michelle Obama, in their eyes, only got into Princeton because of her race. Um, and so there's an opposition to affirmative action because they feel like the level, the playing field has been leveled for the wrong people in their mind. That it's their white kids, for example, who are not getting into these elite schools because um, some less deserving black kid is taking their spot. Or you see the, or, and what's interesting about that again, if you look at research, um, you have liberals who absolutely believe in affirmative action as a concept, except when it comes to their own kids, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it's my white kid who's not going to get into Princeton because some some minority kid took his or her spot, then suddenly maybe I'm not for affirmative action as much. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that people believe in an equal shot at the American dream. Um, well, the I weird think thing about college, though, is that it's both an outcome and an opportunity, right? So... Uh, conservatives construe it as an outcome and they don't want equality of outcomes. They want equality of opportunities. Right. So it's like, mm -hmm. uh, we can't, we're not going to just like treat it as like, uh, the result of, you know, the, the goal that you're getting to, then, uh, then we, we can't assume that everyone's equal at that level, but liberals think that no, it's an college is an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for advancement. Right. And so that's the, the trouble with college is it's got elements of both especially the, the fancy prestigious schools. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's true. And, and more and more people are thinking of college as the opportunity, not necessarily for a good education, because the reality is you could probably get a fairly equally good education, depending on what you make of it at, at, at any state schools you would at, you know, some, some elite Ivy. Um, it's more about connections. It's more as an entree point to building a social circle that will then help you advance professionally. Right. I think it's also just like a signal, a marker that like we won as a family, we won, we got our daughter into Harvard, we won. Yeah. And oh, so no, it's, it's this outcome, you know, I get to yeah. put the sticker on the back of my station wagon, you know? Well, and it's true. If you look at the Lori Laughlin, that whole situation, yeah. Emily, you're much more aware of these people than I am. Um, but all these celebrities who, who got their kids into USC, which apparently was the place to get into if you live in L.A., um, you know, they probably would have done just as well at, I don't know, California schools that well, but, you know, at, at some some less prestigious, quote unquote, prestigious school in California. But it's the whole, as you said, the whole point of saying, oh, no, my daughter goes to USC or my daughter goes to Georgetown, I think was the other big school or where some people got their kids into versus George Washington or, or American in DC. Um, yeah, so, so it becomes a prestigious status symbol is the same as having a Gucci bag or whatever. Right. But, but is that the case for, is that more of a liberal kind of mindset or is that across the board? Uh, that's a good question. That's a good I, question. Yeah. I feel like I, that's across the board. I, because I mean, at the, you know, so at the elite Ivy schools, I feel like you get more liberal people, but the fact that they can say I went to Harvard is something that, you know, makes them very, is, is a defining quality of that person. But that's, you know, yes, and that's true. And I mean, the one, the joke I always, <laughs> Emily, the joke you and I always have, and, and Jason, your brother went to Harvard, so tell me if this is true. Mm -hmm. But the joke that um, 
Emily and I always have is if somebody went to Harvard, it's like the first thing they tell you about, about themselves. I don't care if they're 50 years old. They'll be like, hi, my name is John and I went to Harvard. But they'll but they'll do it euphemistically. They'll say, yes, yeah. I went to school out in Cambridge outside of Boston. <laughs> Where'd you go to school? Oh, a little school in Cambridge. And whenever they, actually they've done that, and every time they say that, I'm like, MIT, they get all pissed off. No, Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's true. And I don't. By the way, I don't see that because Emily, you went to Brown, and and Jason, you went to Princeton, which are both incredible schools. I don't see that with either of those schools. It's just Harvard or Yale, for that matter. It's just hi, my name is so and so. Yeah, I went to uh, I went to Cambridge, a school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, but anyway, but I wonder, Emily, you say that it's not, but I don't know. It's very weird because I grew up obviously um, in a town where. I was surrounded by people whose entire life was about getting their kids into these schools. But I, I also feel like there's a, among uh, Roger Ailes used to, and here I have to be careful. I don't think I'm violating my NDA saying this because I think he said this publicly, but Roger Ailes would always tell me um, that if he, if, if, if it were left to him, to him and to his own devices, that he would hire somebody who went to Ohio state, um, which is where I think he went or some school in Ohio um, before he hired anybody from an Ivy League school, because those people had more common sense and, and they weren't brainwashed by the liberal, you know, academic elite and yada, yada. And it's gotten to the point, and that's an interesting point. He would say that well before, you know, Mitt Romney came along. And then here's Mitt Romney, who I believe went to both Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School, um, mocking Barack Obama for being um, a graduate of Columbia and Harvard basically saying, oh, he lives in this pointy head elitist world, where it's become almost like a badge of pride um, to beat up on Ivy League schools, whereas before, regardless of your political affiliation, parents would work relentlessly to try to get their kids to get into these schools. I mean, the whole point of pride of getting your kids into the best school possible. Now it's become a marker of some sort of uh, liberal mindset that conservatives want to disassociate themselves with, including conservatives like Trump. I mean, um, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, who does this whole all shucks, you know, I'm a Southern guy, I believe was a Rhodes Scholar. And I think went to Harvard or, or some elite school, but always kind of looks down on this elite um, universe. Um, and Cotton and Hawley and Cruz and like one after the next. Right? Cruz, Cruz is very proud of his background. Didn't you go to school with Cruz? Yeah, yeah. you got to tell some good cruise stories one day. Yeah, my uh, my roommate was in student government, and so he he crossed paths with him. Ted Cruz, who when he was at Harvard Law School, would not be in a study group with anybody who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. Apparently, now is a man of the people, but uh, <laughs> which I love. But I think it's also fa- I mean, it's all very fascinating to me because it used to be that people would just automatically want their kids to get into the most um, elite institution possible, and now it's become uh, oh, well, we don't want our kids going there. They're going to be brainwashed. They're going to be, and maybe, you know, if you look at educational attainment, maybe they are brainwashed in college. <laughs> or I don't know what came first, right? The chicken or the egg, whether it's college, whether it's education that makes you more um, prone to being a liberal or whether um, you are indoctrinated to some degree in college, potentially with liberal ideology. I don't know. All my professors, I, I was a international relations major for a while and all my professors were huge Reagan fans who had all served um, in his administration. So I did not, I did not see any liberal brainwashing at good old Boston university, at least in my department, quite the opposite. Oh yeah. They were all really interesting. Yeah. It's something that we talk about a lot, uh, talk about a lot in, in my field is that we do have too much of a liberal bias and we need to figure out a way 
to correct that. Right. Um, we, we are giving too much ammunition to the other side. And, yeah. uh, and we need to also, it may be affecting the way we are interpreting our data. You know, we may be looking at things through a biased lens. That's interesting. Um, any other questions? So Julie, now, do you, will after this conversation, will you be engaging with people who support Trump on Twitter? I just, I don't think it's worth it anymore. I don't think I can change. You know, I used to always say when I was a Fox all those years, and Emily, I would say to you, if I could change one person's viewpoint, it's worth it. And if I could just, and, and the beauty of Fox, I mean, when I was there, at least, I, I don't know how much it's changed now, is nobody ever told me what to say or not to say. Like, I was mm -hmm. able to speak my mind, um, which I don't think is necessarily the case for, for people who, um, well, I mean, you, you kind of always play to an audience of one who was Roger Ailes. And obviously, you knew that if you wanted to move up, you kind of, I think, intuitively understood what he wanted to hear. I, I, I knew my role there. So I... I could say what I wanted to say, but um, do I think there was probably some self-censorship from a lot of other anchors? Yes, I do. Um, and I believe that that probably is still the case, but without anybody telling them to censor themselves. But I also will say, um, I don't know that I believe that anymore because I think what, it, what, what my role of Fox at least um, did maybe is, I don't know that I changed anybody's mind. I think at best what I did was make them see that this is what a Democrat is, and we don't all have, you know, horns in our head and, and, and little tails. Um, because so many people don't have anything to do with other people who are not in their political cohort. Um, most people live among other like-minded people. I mean, I live in the Upper West Side of New York. I work in Democratic politics. If I don't want to see a Republican for 10 years, I, I, I don't have to, right? I mean, it's just where I live. And the same goes for people who live in Texas and live in, you know, Oklahoma and, and Mississippi and other um, Republican areas. So I don't know if it's worth it. I honestly don't know if it's worth it because I don't know that I can single handedly convince somebody not to be grossed out when they see vomit on the street, as Jason said. I don't think I, I just, you know, I, I don't know that I have the ability to convince somebody that as somebody who was a refugee myself, and Jason, I think your mom was as well, that people who come here are not coming here to game the system and to get, you know, free driver's licenses at the Department of Motor Vehicles and to get their kids free tuition in college while everybody else has to wait online at the DMV or, you know, pay exorbitant college tuition, which is a lot of what people think. Um, it's just that people who are coming here are coming here out of desperation for a better life for themselves or their kids, and in some cases because they're afraid for their lives. I mean, look at what's happening. Um, down in South America right now and, and, and why that's driving people to, to try to come here at great peril and great risk to their lives. I also find it fascinating that a lot of the same people whose families came here in the 1920s who are of Italian descent or Irish descent who got a tremendous amount of pushback and racism directed at them because they were Southern European Catholics or, or, or you know, Irish, you know, no Irish need apply and all the other horrible stuff that you know happened 100 years ago to white ethnic um, people who came here are the very same people who now want to shut the door behind them to others. And every time you ask somebody that question, the answer is, well, that was then things weren't that bad. Now things weren't that bad. They're really awful. Now. And the reality is they're not awful. Now they're much more awful back then. <laughs> There's much less of a social safety net. Um, 
but you don't want to see it, right? And and now it's Latinos, and then after that, it's going to be somebody else, you know, whether it's going to be Syrian refugees or, or God only knows the next the next cohort that's going to be fleeing for their lives. Um, it's you know, I think we all know history well enough to know that Jews were turned away even after the rise of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s from this country, um, and a lot of them perished as a result of that. And so the same thing is happening now. Um, in Syria and other countries, and people don't want to come here, and people want to come here, and people want to keep them out. And, and what's history going to judge about that? Um, and how many people we have left to be slaughtered because of that aspect of, of our policies? So I don't know. I mean, if anything, Jason, what you've told me reinforced to me, what you've told us is reinforced to me that this racial resentment and this desire for law and order, as they define it, makes it almost psychologically impossible for any one person to break through. Well, I think it makes it difficult, but I guess to take a few baby steps toward optimism. I mean, I think the idea is like, you know, you're not trying to persuade a disgust-sensitive person out of being disgust-sensitive. Mm-hmm. What you're trying to do is maybe craft your message to this person so that it resonates with that frequency, right? And so, like, I, you know, I gave that example about the you know, closing the gap on environmental attitudes by speaking to disgust, right? And so I think there's, you know, there are a few openings that are available for meaningful discourse to actually occur. So people aren't just like totally talking past each other. Um, So we can actually be tuned to the same frequency. And I think, you know, it's going to be super difficult and it's going to take decades to fix the damage that has been done over decades to reach this state, right? Um, but I'm not ready to say it's hopeless because I think there are some psychological openings that we could exploit, right? Maybe exploit isn't the right word, but you know, to capitalize on, to take advantage of. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a good point is that if you meet people from a messaging perspective where they are, um, as opposed to trying to change the paradigm altogether, that's probably a more effective way of doing it. Not probably. Right. And, like- and it's also kind of like acknowledging the person's, you know, motivations as valid, right? I, I understand that you have this powerful, strong motivation, and, and I um, recognize it, and I'm going to try to speak to you in a language you understand. That's interesting. That's actually great advice um, and something to consider as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this incredible chat. We'd love, we would both love to have you back on because I, I have many more questions. I just don't know how many hours people can devote to this in their cars. But Any thank time. you. Julie, that was a fantastic conversation. I feel like I learned a lot during it. And during while, while even you and Jason were talking, I found myself just completely into the conversation and then my brain going on eight different tangents. I think anybody's going to learn something from what we just listened and were a part of. Totally fascinating conversation. And you're right, we went down a bunch of interesting rabbit holes, I think, in a good way. I just think it's really fascinating to take the study of politics, which is what I do, um, or I guess the practice of politics, and, and juxtapose it to the study of the human psyche and what motivates people to act as they do politically. And it's not, you know, what what so many people in my profession do is quote unquote persuasion where they try to persuade somebody but to some extent i don't know that we use psychiatric models to try to or psychological models i should say to try to persuade people 
And and what Jason said is really interesting. I mean, on the environment, I thought that was such an interesting point where if you're grossed out by pollution because you're grossed out by dirt and disorder floating in the ocean, um, maybe you're more prone to thinking that the Exxon Valdez or or, or the BP spill or, or any of these things are, are less acceptable and you've got to be more pro-environmental pro-environmentalism. On the other hand, that leads to more regulation. How do you juxtapose that with the desire to deregulate everything? The desire to get government out of your lives and the intrusion of government out of your lives. So I could see how somebody opposed to environmental regulations would be able to use that to say we want fewer regulations in our lives. So why are we worried about pollution? The government can't tell us whether to pollute or not. More people should have conversations like we had with Jason. More people in my business should have conversations with Jason. I also think Rush Limbaugh and Roger Ailes and all the the people who sort of created the the um, right wing echo chamber inherently understood what Jason explained to us, um, which is that there's there's an inherent disgust that it could be tapped into, and that disgust can lead to people having a different attitude about politics than they had previously, right? Which is why. Uh, the war on Christmas is so effective, <laughs> which is why Dr. Seuss is so effective um, and all these other different um, conversations. I just think it's very fascinating. So what makes you salty today? Well, really the Cuomo stuff, it, it really made me very unhappy because it just also, I think, brought a lot of people out who were trying to belittle these women because they weren't physically attacked without the understanding that it's all these like little issues that because it leads to just it, it's all part of institutional sexism at the end of the day and the, the way you got to end that is to way to stop the little things and the big things it, it happened needs to happen together you can't just be like you know physical assault is bad and, and you know this better than than i do having been in, in this business and you're actively fighting against it with with our voices what made me salty about all this is the situational ethics the the MAGA crowd is all over Cuomo, and they should be. I'm all over Cuomo, too, um, about this. But silence on Madison Cawthorn, Mad- uh, silence on Ronnie Jackson, um, Robert Trump's, Trump's White House doctor for Congress, who now apparently has this big tag on him for, for getting wasted and hitting on women and acting horribly um, while he was a White House doctor. Silence on all of that, certainly silence on Trump. All the Trump accusers are liars, but all the Cuomo accusers are, are telling the truth. That's the part that's driving me insane. Like, be consistent. Right. Be consistent. If you support Cuomo, the women who oppose Cuomo, not oppose, if you support the women who are accusing Cuomo of impropriety, then support the ones who are accusing your side of that of impropriety too. And vice versa, by the way. I mean, the number of horrific tweets that Lindsay Boylan, who's the first Cuomo accuser, has gotten from liberals who are like, why are you doing this? This is awful. Andrew Cuomo saved all of us. That's the part that's driving me insane. And on that note, Em, I got to tell you, we've had this podcast go for two hours. I think people are probably ready to call it a day. So uh, we're going to as well. Okay. Till next time. Talk to you later. See ya. Bye. Bye.